Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Josias podcast. Um, we're joined this week by Alan, who's going to be discussing with us which form of government is best, whether Pope Leo was prudent or not in his policy of ralliement, and all sorts of related topics. Before we begin, Pater, would you uh, tell us a little bit about the music we just listened to and why you picked it? Absolutely. So this was uh, Handel's setting of one of the antiphons for the coronation of kings, namely Zadok the priest. Um, and he composed the setting for the coronation of uh, George II, the Hanoverian king of England. So <laughs> I'm very excited to speak to Alan. I've, I've known Alan uh, for many, many years, even longer than I've known Joel since I was a teenager. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, arguing with him about what the best form of government it is, is. But Alan, as an Englishman, does it stir your patriotic heart to hear this music? Oh gosh, yes. It's impossible to listen to that piece of music without feeling tremendously jingoistic as a consequence. <laughs> a, very, a, very, a very clever opening on your part. Yeah. <laughs> the music, I guess the, uh, uh, I, I was reading about it, I guess the verse was selected because it had been used by, I think, James II. So it's... Uh, it's maybe a little, a little less Hanoverian <laughs> than all that. that. Verse is a standard part of the coronation rite in general, in almost all Roman forms of the coronation rite. Yeah, uh, it is possible that Wikipedia oh. misled me. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's go ahead and start. Uh, Alan, would you tell us what was Pope Leo up to? Could you sort of just give a sort of definition? Well, uh, when when Leo was elected Pope in 1878, um, the situation of the Church, politically speaking, was was pretty catastrophic. Really, I mean, um, the Papal States had been lost eight years earlier. Um, uh, Germany was in the grip of the Kulturkampf um, uh, in the wake of it being taken over by the Prussians, and um, uh, the Pope had forbidden. Italian Catholics to participate in elections lest they um, lest they give uh, recognition to the seizure of the Papal States by the uh, anti-clerical Piedmontese Kingdom of Italy and um, the only part of Europe which had apparently shown any signs of promise was France where um, immediately after the defeat of Napoleon III and his abdication um, the Royalists had won a crushing majority in the French National Assembly. So uh, it looked as if um, uh, there was going to be a conservative Royalist restoration in France. And uh, it, it, it's that period to which belongs the the construction at public expense of Sacré-Cœur in Montmartre, which was intended as a sort of expression of, of uh, restorationist fervour and uh, and the rejection of yeah, the atonement the, for the revolution. Yes, and the revolution. Um, a standing insult to the republic, as it was later described. Um, and in some ways, um, uh, in some ways, the Eiffel Tower, I think, is intended as a sort of uh, rude gesture back from the republicans later on. Um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, so but it never came about because um, the royalists were divided into Orleanists and legitimists. And um, the uh, legitimist candidate, um, Henry V, uh, um, he refused to – well, they, they, he agreed to recognize the Orleanist candidate as his heir. So that seemed to solve what one of, would have thought would have been the major problem. But he insisted that they agree in advance never to use the tricolor as the French flag because he thought that he, would, he was unwilling to take the crown under that banner because he saw it as an acceptance of the ideology of the revolution – and the Orleanists refused to vote through the restoration of the monarchy on that condition, and um, uh, neither of them blinked. And then the Republicans won a majority, and then uh, they never lost it again. And uh, the, the 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 French Republic fell into the hands of militant, anti-clerical, largely Masonic forces uh, from then on up until. Um, Pretty much. It's, it's so having lost their majority um, and and the third republic having fallen into the hands of virulently anti-clerical forces 
um, uh, Leo the Thirteenth was elected at just at that point as Marshal McMahon, the uh, the royalist president of the Republic, was was being forced to resign because he couldn't form a government uh, because he couldn't find anyone who agreed with his views who could hold a majority in in the French legislature. And so the rallying really is a kind of um, which doesn't really occur until uh, officially until eighteen ninety two. Uh, with an encyclical to the French called Au Milieu des Solicitudes, um, is, uh, I suppose in part it may have been inspired by a change to the constitution that was made in France in 84, which said that, which forbade the constitution ever to be amended in such a way as would cause it to cease to be a republic. So from that point onwards, it, you couldn't restore the monarchy without intending revolution. So it kind of put the put a, a legitimist Catholic in a kind of trap, uh, because uh, you, you, if revolutions are intrinsically immoral, uh, then you couldn't reverse this one without um, acting immorally. So, so Leo the said, um, "Let's forget, stop arguing about the form of government. Never mind flags." And concentrate on trying to prevent uh, a horrendous anti-clerical takeover of the French state and the expulsion of religious orders and such like. The important thing is that we conform the civil order to divine and natural law and not that we obsess on what is, absolutely speaking, an indifferent matter, the question of which form of government France should adopt. That, that's something we'll get to more in a moment. But the idea was to rally to the republic and try to make it a Catholic republic rather than a militantly secularist, anti-Catholic state such as it in fact became yes but he doesn't ask uh, he doesn't ask the french particularly to hold that the republic is some is the best form of government or anything like that he just asks them to accept the powers that right. and work on essential matters instead so but many many of the french um don't accept even that much that is you have lots of french um especially french clerics parish priests and so on, uh, but then also, of course, French aristocrats who, um, as a matter of principle, won't, won't recognize the legitimacy of the Republic. Yeah. And this is part of what why the policy ends up not um, achieving the goals that Pope Leo sets well, for. Certainly within his lifetime, it, it, it would appear to be quite unsuccessful. And, and by, by 1905, two years after he died, the Concordat of 1801, which was the reduced basis on which church-state relations have been conducted in France uh, over the whole of the 19th century, is, is repudiated and extreme measures, appropriation of all church property, refusal to recognize the church as a juridical person, a cessation of diplomatic relations with the Holy See, are all introduced in, in 1905. And they've already closed down Catholic schools and expelled religious orders from the country. So, so it's a, on that scale, it's a it's catastrophic failure. The question is, is that because the intransigent royalists refuse to get with the program and obsess about a secondary question? Or is that because Leo should have should have thrown in his, thrown, you know, stayed steady as he go with the royalists in the first place? Yeah, so this is uh, Roberto de Matteo's thesis in his mm -hmm. new book um, on the Radimar that um, Leo XIII should have been a, a royalist like... Uh, like Roberto de Matei, and he should have <laughs> gone with the, the French royalists and not have never have made this attempt at rallying. The the problem with that thesis it seems to me is it's difficult to um, it's difficult to sustain from a doctrinal point of view because um, we're obliged to accept the the de facto power by Catholic doctrine. Um, so I don't see once once it became impossible without revolution. I mean, Leo XIII uh, complains in Omilio de Solicitude that uh, questions of constitutional form should not be unchangeable. They don't belong to absolute right and wrong, so, so they shouldn't be unchangeable. But as it happens in France at that point, they, they had been made unchangeable. Well, was that, no point, that point, surely all Catholics have to agree any, uh, you know, any form of government, so long as it's ordered to the common good, and so long as, if we're talking about a Christian state, so long as it uh, recognizes the superiority of the uh, spiritual power, mm -hmm. can be a good form of government. 
I guess my question here would be, when you have the Republicans, uh, when the Republicans aren't Catholic Republicans, and when the Republic, as it's set up, is uh, not going to be a Catholic state, at some point, the form of government becomes a bad form of government. And uh, uh, wouldn't it then cease to have uh, authority over men? But isn't that self-fulfilling? I mean, if, if, uh, if the, um, I mean, the, the Leonine counter-argument would be if, if they weren't dividing their forces between, between Catholics who were in favor of the Republic and Catholics who were opposed, and were concentrating on matters which are genuinely non-negotiable, then they would have a sufficient electoral impact to uh, to kick out the, the anti-clericals. All right, let's let's maybe move to to a kind of more a broader consideration um, because we have the argument uh, that's been made on the Josias as well that the 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 strategy of um, engaging in in sort of modern liberal politics ends up kind of inevitably backfiring and uh, turn, ends up uh, instead of the modern liberal political order becoming Catholic, instead Catholics become liberal and secularized. Um, and so people point to the, um, the period of, of Christian democracy um, in the 20th century uh, and the great hopes for Christian democracy, especially after the Second World War, um, which, however, have come to naught. Instead of the restoration of a new Christendom, which certain people hoped for after the Second World War, what you get is um, the, a catastrophic secularization of, of Christian Europe. So, um, uh, but you, Alan, has you've written a, a, a really interesting book. Um, on Robert Schumann, the, the uh, founder of the EU. And you uh, argue that there's another problem in that uh, kind of post-war um, Christian democracy that is not, uh, that it makes it different from what Leo was going for. What, what was There's a strange thing, which is that there's already an encyclical in 1901 called Gravis de Communi Rei by, by Leo XIII, in which he's uh, only on Christian democracy in which he's really not keen at all on the idea of there being Christian democratic parties. Um, and uh, I've, I've been sort of wrestling with this over the last few weeks because I, I was marking an essay by somebody um, on this question of whether parties are a bad thing. And um, uh, I, I wonder whether or not Leo's, Leo thought that having even having a Christian democratic party uh, implies that uh, the fundamental principles of Catholic teaching and natural law belong to the kind of indifferent matters which ought to be open to legitimate dispute in the civil process, um, and that that in itself leads to a kind of indifferentism, which I think may may uh, may give some support to uh, your thesis, Dr. Edmund, I think, that, that, uh, that participation in the system, at least under the declared Christian democratic banner, can turn uh, Christians into liberals. And you also see in the United States, I think, um, a difficulty where if one party is so extreme in its rejection of the natural law, as one of the two main parties in the United States might be supposed to be. Um, uh, the other party can, be, can take the, the votes of those who care about this question for granted. At least one party is, is so extreme. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, the other party need to do almost nothing because, because, the, because its opposing party is, is, is rendered itself, renders itself unacceptable on principle. And therefore, both parties become completely useless from the perspective of someone who cares about natural and divine law. But the so hold on, before we get to uh, Potter Evans' question, I just I, how does this? I mean, this is Leo again writing this about the Christian parties. Yeah. How is Raliamont in his mind, or however that's actually pronounced? How is that distinct from uh, having a, a Christian Democratic Party or, or something of that nature? Well, I suppose his, what he's envisaging is, um, 
is a situation in which both main parties or all main parties, whatever the complexion of the system is, are are frightened of losing and are trying to appeal to a Catholic vote, which has red lines. And in those circumstances, the church becomes tremendously powerful. I mean, right. one, one I sort of situation like in the United States in the late 50s when Hollywood studios would send the scripts of movies to the bishops to make sure they were okay before they went into production. I mean, I'm sure that's the, the kind of relationship between the political order and, and the church that he would have uh, preferred to see. All right. So, so, let's, uh, so what was the, I think it's uh, integral humanism yeah. is the other, is the question that Potter was getting at. So this is this is some uh, this arose as a result of uh, a movement called Action Française, which was founded in the late nineteenth century, which was an integral nationalist movement in France, which uh, was some um, devoted. Uh, well, it was led intellectually by um, Charles Morat, and he, um, who was an atheist, and um, and he. Uh, he um, wanted an integral, conser- politically conservative, integral nationalist settlement for France uh, with a restored monarchy. Despite the fact that he was himself an atheist, he saw Catholicism as a kind of civic cult, which would provide a, a, a rallying point. It would be to France what Wagner would be to the Third Reich. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah. and, um, and uh, yeah, and, and he, he so he wanted a, a, a for strangely secular reasons um, a, a a very conservative legitimist program of the sort that was uh, that the legitimists uh, appeared to espouse at the beginning of the eighteen seventies, um, and obviously that attracted a lot of conservative royalist French Catholics, but for for reasons which are. You know, seek these other things, and the kingdom of heaven will be given unto you. I mean, was essentially (laughs) (laughs) the the idea. And um, and Pius X even quietly considered condemning this movement as unorthodox, but decided that the situation in France with the law of separation in 1905 was so terrible that they couldn't afford to be kicking. allies however un- undesirable in the shins at such a moment um, but in the end Pius XI condemned it um, and eventually uh, the, the magazine was put on the index of forbidden books and people who remained members of the movement were denied the sacraments um, and this is very controversial and Maritain, um, Jacques Maritain uh, and Garrigou Lagrange were both um, both quite quite implicated in Action Francaise um, Garrigou even uses its slogan "Politique d'abord" in his introduction to the De Regno that he wrote right. just a year before the condemnation. And um, and Maritain was instructed gravely by Pius XI to go out and support his condemnation of Action Française. But uh, Maritain had a bizarre reaction to this. He decided that rather than the problem being the instrumentalization of the supernatural for the sake of a natural goal, which was the reason why it was condemned. But the real problem was was opposition to secularism and, and republicanism, which wasn't nobody thought you had to believe in republics or or certainly you were forbidden to be in favour of secularism. So he he developed this this new political philosophy called integral humanism, uh, which rests on the idea that certain ideas of, of, a, of a participatory Republican civil order and universal human rights and universal franchise don't really make sense without supernatural charity and divine revelation. Um, and therefore, if you have these things, even if you don't have an explicit acceptance of the kingship of Christ in the civil order, you will have implicitly accepted the kingship of Christ. Uh, it's sort of an anonymous Christendom and therefore, we should all enthusiastically get behind um, uh, a sort of secular United Nations-esque agenda of, um, of, uh, of yeah, global ethics. Yeah, so interestingly, it's, it's, in a way, it's another version of, of politique d'abord, because, uh, again, you're thinking, given some political arrangement, the kingdom of, of heaven will be also granted unto you. <laughs> It's sort of a perennial temptation. I mean, it's it's the the, the apostles themselves sort of make this mistake. Uh, 
But I, I do wonder about that because it does seem it does seem also to to hold some resemblance to uh, the sort of uh, George Weigel crowd that we have here in the states, who really seem to think that uh, their version of a liberal democracy is more fundamental than Catholicism, even, or at least co-fundamental. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's a better way of putting it. <laughs> Rather like Dante Dons. Yeah. So, so that- yeah, I mean, and they're, they're even more radical than, than Maritain because Maritain would, would say, I mean, he has this theory of different ages where the different arrangements are, are fitting. So you have the sacral age of the Middle Ages where a, an, a kind of integralist arrangement between church and state is f- suitable. But then um, in our age, you need integral humanism. Whereas Weigel would say, no, you know, you've got to have uh, separation of church and state in some sense is necessary for religious liberty. So yeah, the he thinks medieval Christendom was just wrong. He thinks it's per se beyond the competence of the state to declare that this was the true religion. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's a movement, uh, a, a very helpful movement in the drafting of Dignitatis Humanae uh, from uh, an early stage when something more like George Weigel's view on things is embodied in the drafts to a later stage when it moves back towards a Maritanian vision, which, because of the things that it leaves out, allows it to be reconciled with uh, previous teaching. At a stretch. <laughs> um, but of course, that's all Tom Pink's area. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So... At this point, uh, maybe we can ask. So we're, we're talking about the the forms of government, and early on, you said that it was a matter of indifference. Is this really right? Is it really indifferent for Catholics? Uh, and what's more, is it even indifferent for liberals? Don't liberals really want democracy? They can exist maybe under a Frederick the the, the Great, uh, but really, they tend to. They tend towards democracy. That's the most natural form. And likewise, you could say, well, a Catholic state, you can have, you know, Venice is a republic, but uh, otherwise they tend towards a monarchy, maybe a mixed government, but one in which the monarchical element predominates. I mean, I think there's an awful lot of, uh, of, of Catholic republics over the course of history. I mean, in uh, the many different Italian republics, uh, I mean, certainly, I think a monarchical element is intrinsic to the nature of government, that you're, you're trying to order many, many to one end, and that which is by nature one, the individual, most easily does that. Um, I, I think, well, I mean, I'm, I, uh, I, my suspicion in regard to liberalism is that, uh, is that it has to claim to be democratic, uh, like, you know, the German Democratic Republic. Obviously, that's not a liberal republic, but, but the, they, they're all gonna, they're all, all traced back to an essentially nominalist, contractualist account of the right. origin of civil legitimacy. Um, but in fact, that account is so incoherent, uh, as, as Leo XIII says, the contract they allege is manifestly a fiction. Uh, um, um, that, that you have to essentially, everybody has to believe that everybody has agreed in advance to whatever the state does. Otherwise, the state cannot have legitimacy. So although there's this mystical, imaginary contract underlying it all, essentially liberty is eviscerated by the fact that you've agreed in advance to whatever the state does. So it's important for it to preserve democratic language and democratic forms, but there's no absolute requirement for it to actually be participatory or limited. But this is, uh, I mean, in a way, this is the way democracies have always been. If you look at Plato's critique of democracy in the Republic, um, again, it's it's uh, you have this this sort of um, uh, official love of freedom and uh, equality, but that doesn't mean that there's actual freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean by actual freedom? Well, what 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 do you think? I mean, why do you think that uh, a republican form of government is conducive to political liberty? Um, well, I mean, I mean, it seems to me that uh, if um, if man is a social and political animal, 
which is. Um, and if we are obliged to will the good of our neighbor for our neighbor's own sake, and our neighbor, all other things being equal, flourishes in the context of, of the life of the city, um, then it's appropriate, all other things being equal, for the civil order to be participatory. And also, given that we will the good of our fellow citizens for their own sake, for there to be a certain equality before the law. But that, that belongs to the bene essay of, 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 a, of a good state. Uh, it, it's not a requirement for its legitimacy. It seems to me that the liberal, the nominalist, puts things the other way around. He makes he makes the democratic or republican character of the state a, a minimum requirement for legitimacy and, uh, as a consequence, renders it mythological. But uh, couldn't you say this, that uh, I agree that, that um, political participation is uh, is good and that man is a political animal and so on and you should w- want the good of your neighbor and so on. But um, it seems to me you are, you're, you're going to have to um, strike a certain balance and you want to guard against certain dangers and you want to um, preserve other goods uh, as well as participation. So it seems to me the best, um, the best form of government is one in which you have um, different estates um, in the community serving a different role in political life. So you have, um, you don't have equality before the law. You have a, a not that is not a, an absolute equality, but you, you have a, a equality of proportion. You have um, so, for example, in in English law, you have uh, the right of a trial by a jury of your peers. But who your peers are will depend on what your station in life is. So, if you're um, a peer of the realm, then <laughs> the trial will be by the House of Lords. Whereas if you're a commoner, I'll be a, a jury of commoners. So you have there not equality before the law, but you have a certain proportion before the law uh, according to different stations in life. And um, it seems to me that that is more suitable to to human nature, that kind of um, an order with different different stations, different grades, um, that that reflects more the... Um, the order of the whole universe and so on. And it avoids some of the destructive uh, tendencies that um, that Plato, for example, uh, identifies in uh, democracies, where you have um, a love of, of freedom and equality that uh, goes beyond uh, measure. So, you know, remember Plato talks about how in, a, in democracies, sons think of themselves as the equals of their fathers and they won't obey and so on, and um, women the equals of men and slaves of their masters. And then he says, even the dogs, you know, in, demo, in the households, in democratic cities, even the dogs are insolent and uh, <laughs> don't want to obey their masters. The, the, uh, the, the she-dogs are like their she-mistresses. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think there's several objections one could make to that model. Uh, (laughs) For a start, I mean, I I don't feel any obligation to agree with Plato uh, particularly, but but, but, I mean, he's clearly talking about democracy. When he says democracy, he's he's not using the word in the sense that that we now use it. Uh, We mean it much more of a mixed republic in which everything is ultimately rooted in, in universal franchise. Um, although that's not true, of course, of the United Kingdom, where the, the monarchy obviously isn't 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 uh, rooted in universal franchise, but most people would describe the United Kingdom nowadays as a monarchy. Uh, sorry, as a democracy as well as a monarchy. Um, uh, um, and in the ancient world, I mean, the, the the kings of Rome were elected. They 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 didn't see uh, succeed by hereditary descent. I and it doesn't. It seems to me there's no obvious uh, there's no obvious sign that a technical capacity to govern well can be transmitted by dissent. In fact, it seems so unusual for a competent and virtuous monarch to succeed his father, um, uh, who had also been competent and virtuous, that it usually, and or virtuous, it usually transforms the course of history when it happens. Almost always 
a scoundrel is succeeded by a virtuous person or vice versa, and an incompetent succeeds to someone who's competent. So I, I don't I don't really see why assigning different uh, different functions in the state based on inheritance uh, has anything to recommend it. And it's noticeable that St. Thomas makes absolutely no allusion to this arrangement in the De Regno or in the Summa. That argument only works, though, if you assume that uh, 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 some sort of voting of, of universal suffrage leads, on average, uh, to more competent and or virtuous rulers, right? So it seems to me that if you look at uh, uh, republics where the, the head of government is, is elected for a term of years, uh, you, it's, it's rare there to get two in a row that are more than mediocre, either in the Machiavellian or the, the actual sense of, of virtue. Yes, although I mean, it must be said that um, uh, that those states which have followed the mixed model of a, of a sort of monarchical executive and a an elected elected aristocratic in the non hereditary sense um, uh, uh, legislature have tended to be very successful as states. I mean, I mean, the the, the United Kingdom and, and the United States of America have been, uh, and the Roman Republic. Um, were all extremely successful states from a from a secular perspective. Yeah. I want to go back to the uh, first point that um, that you made uh, in mm. response to what I said, Alan. Um, namely, that the what we mean in in modern times by democracy is really a, a mixed mm. form of government. Um, but uh, I mean, I think that uh, obviously. Uh, there's a sense in which that's true. But the mixed form of government we have in modern times is one in which the democratic element is um, at least uh, thought of as Mm -hmm. being primary. And so this leads to the same kinds of problems that the ancients uh, identify in um, in ancient democracy. And if you look at, um, I mean, comparing Tocqueville's book on democracy in America with uh, the passages on democracy in Plato's Republic, there's a lot of overlap. And I don't think it's just because Tocqueville had obviously read Plato, but uh, <laughs> but because he actually saw some of the same things that Plato saw in democracy. You have the, I mean, uh, the Think of of animal rights, right? This is kind of a literalization of of what Plato says about the dogs <laughs> being uh, equal to their mistresses. But and also uh, to, to build on that point, it seems to me a pure form of government, as in a either a pure monarchy, uh, aristocracy, or democracy, or their bad versions, is is very rare. Uh, historically, almost every government is at least a little bit mixed, and usually fairly mixed. I mean, even uh, when England was a monarchy, you had the aristocracy. The, the Roman, uh, the Holy Roman Empire wasn't a pure monarchy. Uh, and a pure democracy, there's, there's, I don't think there's ever been many, I mean, maybe Athens. But I mean, England has always, at least since the 13th century, has essentially been a mixed constitution. Right. So my point is that most governments are mixed. Most governments are, in fact, mixed constitutions, but with one element predominating. And England's a good example of that, because for a while the monarchy predominated, and now the, the sense is that the monarchs have existed for the last century plus only because they haven't rocked the vote. If, if Queen Elizabeth tried to you know, start asserting her prerogatives, uh, I think very quickly she would find herself no longer queen. Well, that's a very, very interesting question. Nobody's quite sure what would happen in such circumstances, and I expect it would depend. <laughs> well, she, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I do think that uh, the fact that the United Kingdom is 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 a monarchy in its fundamental constitutional form, despite being a mixed one, I think is is extremely beneficial to it. Um, I think it's rather like um, the use of Latin in the liturgy, which of course has 
the many many things to commend it, but one of them is that it emphasizes the fact that the priest is not principally addressing the congregation, which is something which is very rapidly forgotten, especially if he faces the congregation um, uh, when the liturgy is celebrated in the next and I think the fact that the, 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 um, the sovereign of the United Kingdom rules by the grace of God. Uh, to I don't know. This, this liturgy doesn't sound very suited to the needs of modern man. <laughs> I, think, I think we need to rewrite it uh, uh, from scratch. I think the fact the sovereign rules by the grace of God um, counteracts the the real cause of, of the of, of the problem with the doggies that uh, Pater Edmund was uh, talking about, which <laughs> which is the nominalist uh, intellectual contractualist background to a lot of assumptions about democracy in the modern world. I think uh, those are the causes of many of the difficulties, uh, not um, not the mere fact of having a mixed and participatory polity. Okay, so I mean, it seems like this is. Um, Pope Leo's, uh, in a way, Pope Leo's point as well that uh, you have to be able to separate the um, the question of the relation of uh, authority and of men and authority and the relation of the two authorities under which divine providence has placed us, um, spiritual and temporal authority, and the question of of the form of the regime. And I think that obviously there's a sense in which that's true, but there's also a sense in which, um, as Joel was saying before, it's no accident that, um, that liberalism, which, uh, I mean, if we, if we think of liberalism here as, as mostly a theory of not a theory of the form of government, but a theory of the nature of authority, and the uh, non-existence uh, of, of spiritual authority, then um, it still seems to me there's an affinity between liberalism and um, and democracy, or even mixed republics in which democracy has a kind of key role. And the affinity is not just um, it, the, it's not a one-way street. You can't see it in a monoforest way to <laughs> borrow a term. The, that is, it's not just that if you have liberalism, you'll also have um, the, at least the pretense of democracy, but also that democracy inclines people to become liberals. So even in populations which um, maybe were not liberal when they um, adopted a... Uh, a more democratic constitution, you see a, a very swift liberalization um, of their hearts, the hearts and minds. Is, of the people. I mean, I don't see that either. Is that true in Poland or in or in England? I mean, I know the Ref the Reformation was driven through by terrifying monarchical authority. It wasn't driven through by. Uh, I mean, he used Parliament as an instrument, certainly, but uh, but it but it wasn't it, it wasn't. Uh, uh, a groundswell popular movement as a result of the parliamentary form of English government, and uh, and Poland, uh, which had an elected monarchy and a, a rather extreme form of democracy, albeit with a limited citizenship, uh, for uh, several hundred years, um, I, I, it doesn't seem to me that those populations were turned into liberals by that fact, and and it does seem to me that the defeat of the Catholic League in France who had intended to turn France into something more like a kind of um, Iranian-esque, uh, partially monarchical Catholic Republic um, at, the end of the, um, at the end of the 16th century. Their defeat and their replacement by the regalist party, who turned France into an absolutely unfettered, absolute monarchy, uh, I mean, led to the enormous tensions which exploded in the French Revolution and national apostasy. Yeah, I mean, the, there seems to be something to that. But as you say, in Poland, you have a limited citizenship. In England, you have you have a mixed form of government, but it's not based on universal franchise. And the the franchise isn't, uh, that is the, it seems to be the dominant element in the English constitution um, before the 19th century is, is aristocratic. Even the commons, um, 
even when the commons are more powerful than the lords, still the, the House of Commons is really an aristocratic institution. Yeah, yeah I was about to say, uh, England uh, doesn't really become liberal until the uh, gentry and the aristocracy have really taken control of things. And, uh, you know, the Tudors were before liberalism really got rolling. Well, I mean, I think you obviously you have because the um, the fundamental basis of the constitution is subverted by the adoption of Protestantism. This creates an inherent instability. It causes the overthrow of the predominance of the monarchical element in the constitution in the 17th century, and it turns it into uh, an aristocratic republic in many respects. Um, uh, and then um, the forces unleashed by the French Revolution eventually uh, lead to uh, as well as the simple increase in the education of the population leads to uh, the introduction of universal franchise at the end of the 19th century and i mean i agree yeah. that universal franchise will make it more likely that people will fall into just like vernacular liturgy might make you start thinking that uh, that the priest is talking to you and not to God, a universal franchise will 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 make you more likely to fall into contractualist errors about the origin of uh, political legitimacy. But there's no necessary logical connection. I mean, all different forms of government have particular advantages and disadvantages which exclude each other in many cases. Yeah. That that I could I think that that I could agree with. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that the form of government is kind of like. Uh, uh, the state of life. Uh, so the form of government that's best for a particular people is the form that they're best suited to afford and, and, and the one that's you know possible at a particular historical moment. Uh, the form of government that's best in the abstract, I would argue, is you can give a more absolute answer, just like, you know, I'm married or, or, or whatever. So therefore, my state of life clearly isn't the priesthood, but absolutely speaking, that is a higher state of life. Well, the priesthood isn't a higher state of life. Religious life is a higher state of life. I'm not sure the priesthood is a state of life. I, I think, but of course, you have to consider what the state of, what the perfect form of government would be in a state of pure nature, what the perfect form of government would be in a state of integral nature, and what the form perfect form of government would be in a state of, of, of fallen nature, and what would be the perfect form of government in the state of fallen and redeemed nature. And I think there are probably different answers I mean, uh, prescinding from the question of different national temperaments and histories, uh, I think there are, there are probably different answers to those four different questions. Okay. <laughs> Let, let's, uh, can you give us a, a hypothesis about what, what the answer would be in each case? Well, I think that there is a certain uh, essential um, um, minimum intellectual equality of human beings um, that, that allows for their moral uh, responsibility. Um, uh, which is why why the hierarchy of human society in heaven will be completely different to the hierarchy of human society on earth, um, which is probably the basis of the jury system, the idea that you can select 12 people at random and they will uh, and, and it will provide the necessary moral break on the judicial system. Um, and, uh, and I think that's um, such that if the soul dominated the body completely, or at least enough, as it did before the fall, hereditary monarchy as a form of lottery, in a way, um, uh, um, ad appointment of a ruler by lottery, um, uh, would have been, uh, would possibly be the most natural system, um, especially as Adam transmitted sanctifying grace by natural generation. St. Thomas, when he's talking about who is most properly called the king, in the De Regno, says that Christ is most properly the, called the king because he is able to bring all men to their to their absolutely final end. And in, in, a, in a reduced way, that would have been true of Adam before the fall. Okay, so um, in, in the state of integral nature, hereditary monarchy is the best. <laughs> I can live with that answer, okay. <laughs> so... Um, what about pure nature? Well, uh, which is a hypothetical state. Yeah, I think in a state of pure nature, something like uh, what Aristotle talks about, um, uh, where you would have had um, families federating into a more mixed 
republican aristocratic form of government um, uh, in which you would select the ruler based on obvious talent and your mind would not be you would not be automatically corrupted by the pursuit of power or or incompetent to select the most talented rulers i think something along those lines would probably uh, <laughs> and Okay, then uh, I mean, I'm not going to pass any comment on that, but let's go straight to <laughs> under the state of fallen but not redeemed nature. Uh, well, that, that yes, um, uh, that's very tricky. Um, uh, uh, Augustine talks about um, in uh, on the free choice of the will. He talks about um, how a, a naturally virtuous people would select their own rulers. Which perhaps is a bit like the state of pure nature, um, uh, but that um, they would sort of inherit uh, a vicious people would naturally fall uh, prey to uh, some sort of um, authoritarian single ruler, something more Bonapartist, perhaps uh, in the state of fallen but not redeemed nature. And I think the mm-hmm. the, the state of fallen and redeemed nature. Is 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 what is the ideal constitution that St. Thomas describes in in the uh, in question one hundred and five of the Prima Secundae, um, and which I think he also has in mind in the De Regno, where you have uh, something which is um, monarchical but grounded in in a in a democratic selection and limited by tempering uh, a tempering also elected aristocracy, essentially the sublime British constitution. Um, uh, Uh, English are are, are so uh, uh, humble about the (laughs) merits of England Uh, uh, but in question 105 I've never quite been sure of this but maybe I'll put it provocatively uh, to see how you react Uh, what I would provocatively say is Aquinas isn't saying there that the monarchy is going to be Elected. He's saying that there's going to be a monarchy and they're in a mixed constitution with a predominantly monarchical character. And the mixed part will have elected aristocracy and maybe also, you know, a parliament of commoners where certain questions go or advice is given, something like that. Yeah, I think it's it, there is an ambiguity there. It's, it's not clear. You can't really tell whether he, he means that both the monarch and the aristocracy would be elected or whether he only means that the aristocracy would be elected. But I, I, I suspect that he means both, uh, because in the De Regno, and in fact, he always studiously avoids ever alluding to heredity as a principle for selecting rulers. And when he considers uh, what to do about a tyrannical ruler in the De Regno, he considers the possibility of him being removed by a higher authority uh, probably Innocent III or somebody along those lines, um, uh, or um, or him being removed by the multitude who set them over themselves. He never, he and, and when he talks about um, the, if if they can't be removed, that's clearly a, a misfortune. He he clearly doesn't think that's a good thing. And he even says that if they uh, if the, even if they set the ruler over themselves in perpetuity. They can still get rid of him because uh, they set a ruler over themselves, not a tyrant. So he's uh, he's not fulfilling the job description. So let me let me just say a few things um, in, in favor of, of the hereditary principle um, before we then maybe uh, move on. Uh, it seems to me you have a, that you have some advantages to a hereditary system. Um, both for the monarch himself and for at least um, either a part of the aristocracy or at least uh, sort of the wider um, estate within the community from which the aristocracy is chosen. And some of the um, the advantages are that uh, in a hereditary system, the successors are brought up in the households of their predecessors, they're accustomed to the um, the form of of life that is suitable to that station in life. Um, they have the uh, uh, 
the traditions of their family and the, the nobility of their ancestors and so on to inspire them and also to inspire their subjects. That is, for me as a subject, it's easier to be loyal to uh, someone who is comes from a long line of kings who ruled over my ancestors, under whom my ancestors shed their blood for the common good and so on, than it is for just some random guy of the same um, station as myself who's, who happens to have been elected. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that, that would be the main. The main well, I mean, I, I think um, I think the, the aristocratic milieu is, is just as likely to be corrupting as it is likely to be ennobling. And um, uh, so, so I'm not sure that, that, that kill, that's a killer argument. Um, I, I do think that, the, however, the pursuit of power is often more corrupting in a fallen but redeemed state than the possession of power itself. And the instability right. uh, generated by having the head of state determined by election uh, is problematic. And I think in these, um, in these republics, you know, like Ireland, for example, where you have an elected but more or less ceremonial head of state, it's a terrible damp squib. I mean, you might as well go, go full throttle with a, with a monarchy, uh, a hereditary monarchy, rather than have a boring, <laughs> uh, um, um, uh, purely ceremonial head of state. Um, and, and I think, um, uh, according to the Lancastrian theory of the English Constitution, uh, the, the mono- it is a sort of republic in the sense that the, the line of succession can be changed by parliament, mean, parliament meaning the monarch, the lords, and the commons. Uh, so, so it's both hereditary and elected, but in a way that, that tries to garner the advantages of both, um, while allowing scope for talent uh, through the... Uh, through the commons and, uh, and the fact that the king rules through his ministers rather than directly. Whereas I think the history of France is a, is a fulsome ref- refutation of the idea that, a, that the, a hereditary head of state and government is a good idea. Well, well it seems to me that if you look at, um, if you look at a place where uh, the, the problem with having people run for office and having is not just that the pursuit of power is corrupting for the people who get power, but uh, it's it's corrupting also for the people because they end up getting pandered to and they end up uh, becoming, uh, they're very susceptible to thinking that uh, the authority is just the People, the, whatever they say will be the authority, rather than that authority comes from above. Well, I, I think the a more balanced an earlier version of the English Constitution, in which uh, ministers who can command a majority in the House of Commons are genuinely appointed by the monarch, but the House of Commons remains fully capable of refusing subsidy and refusing alterations to the law, um, uh, probably gets the balance about right. Uh, I, I would have yeah. no problem with that. Yeah, I do think I do think uh, uh, personally, in a fallen but redeemed world, uh, a mixed constitution is going to be the best. You're, you're, the, the others are too insta- unstable, and uh, you're too subject to uh, uh, fortune, changing fortunes. Yeah, I think a mixed constitution is the best too, but I think that the elements, the the balance between the elements should be as follows. The monarchical element should be predominant, and then the aristocratic element should have the second place, and then the democratic element the third place. Um, in, 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 so uh, you'd have to concretize that. I mean, I mean uh, do you, so would you, uh, would you, you think that the people should at least, through their elected representatives, have the capacity to refuse uh, uh, ordinary taxation and um, uh, and alterations to the jus civile. Uh, I'm going to have to think about that one. <laughs> <laughs> so that's essentially the fundamental constitution of, of England. Right. That the, the, the ministers were appointed by the sovereign. The line of succession can be changed by Parliament, but only with only by the King in Parliament. Um, 
um, the, the the king it pointlessly appoints ministers if they can't command a majority in the House of Commons, but he does have the authority to appoint them. And the House of Commons, the, the ministers need not be in the House of Commons at all, um, but they will need to persuade the House of Commons to agree to any taxation or any changes to the law other than the common law, which is just based on natural reason and precedent. So yeah, I think we'll have to. We're we're running out of time, but uh, Alan, you'll have to you'll have to give me the arguments for why um, why the people through their representatives in the Commons should have the power of the purse. But uh, that's yeah for another time. <laughs> yeah, when we wrap up, we did have uh, some some comments on the last podcast, and Alan feels stick around for this as well. We uh, we got one email about liberals in part two. Uh, uh, from uh, the always controversial, always interesting Gabriel Sanchez. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> who also, a uh, shout out to him, he gives a whole dollar a month, I think. I, I was just looking at the uh, Patreon. <laughs> so, a supporter of the Desires in many ways. Uh, <laughs> and if anyone listening, if you've made it to this point, please do give generously. It helps us be able to keep the site going and to keep the podcast going. But so let's talk about his letter and what he said. So um, with one of the main points was the, the question of cruelty, which uh, Felix in the last two, uh, and maybe we can get Alan's opinion on this as well. Felix's thesis was that in a way, what's most defining of liberalism is um, an aversion to cruelty, which is um, which he sees in Montaigne, um, which is sort of the the primary principle uh, of liberal thought. And cruelty is there conceived of in kind of a very superficial way, as in, in sort of you know you know it when you see it. Um, and Gabriel's brings up the in a way the obvious objection, namely that the, um, liberals are perfectly willing to be cruel in the service of liberalism. Yeah, so my, my own view is that I don't think the cruelty thesis finally works as a grand unified theory of liberalism. I, I think there probably are multiple. I think liberalism is more of a, a uh, family resemblance than a single thing. I think there's different sorts of liberalisms you can find at different times. I did think that it had a great deal of power and use as a sort of modern sociological, what your modern liberal today, why is it that things like uh, marriage equality, why do they get so much traction? Well, one reason is because modern liberals today think of themselves as uh, being willing to live and let live as long as people aren't cruel. You do whatever you want, just don't be cruel to others. You know, And I think that's really become ingrained in several different strands of liberalism today so that it does have a lot of use today. I think historically and maybe even theoretically, it's not ultimately going to be the sole uh, criteria or even the main criteria in some cases. Also, because of the um, the horrors uh, consequent upon the other logical uh, possibilities contained within nominalism and contractualism produced by the Third Reich and, and the various communist tyrannies in the, in the 20th century, liberalism is, is necessarily defines itself as the nice version of, of modernity in contrast yeah. to those. I think that does, that is a lot of, of what was going on there. And, I, and I, my own view historically is that it was, and it can come about two different ways, is that it's when you either get tired of the bloodshed, you know, after you have a, the 30 years war or whatever, or uh, maybe more sinister philosophical project, but you end up saying we're going to bracket religion into the realm of the private or bracket all these other, uh, uh, you know, more uh, substantial, substantive uh, philosophical stances into the realm of the private, and we'll only talk about uh, you know neutral things in public, and we'll have this procedural principle set up where we can, that way, mechanistically come to a good result. And in fact, that the the neutrality is only purported, and it ends up. Uh, 
being very vicious, which also explains why it can be so cruel, because it, it, anything it sees as uh, uh, challenging it will be uh, rooted out. <laughs> out rooted yeah. around. He also made there's a poem by Auden where he, uh, he, he imagines that he's Herod explaining why on liberal principles he must massacre the innocents of Bethlehem. Uh, and and the, the last line of the, of, of the speech is, uh, I'm a liberal, I want everyone to be happy, I wish I had never been born. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, wow. uh, he, uh, Gabe made some other points that I found interesting. Uh, uh, he sort of chided us uh, for accepting the notion of liberalism and Marxism as being opposed. And, and he said, uh, yeah, I'll read from the email here. Following Schmidt, is Marxism not the fulfillment of liberalism? That is, the vision of society where everyone is left to their own devices to live the kind of life they imagine for themselves. Is that not the liberal promise taken to new heights? Uh, and I think there's an obvious sense in which, yes, Marxism is anti-liberal. He's a liberal critic. He's, you know, uh, withering in his criticism of them and often has very good critiques of the liberal state. But I do think there's another sense in which, which people forget. Marxism really is liberal in its goals. It's just, it's, it's sort of uh, doing liberalism better than the liberals in a certain sense. Uh, and then the last last point he made that I, I found interesting was that, uh, uh, once again, he thought we, we could have said more about this, that liberalism comes endowed with its own theology, a sort of degraded Christianity without transcendence. And I think that's something that's really true and certainly, uh, you know, something we could have talked about. It's hard to talk about everything, even in the time we took. There's an interesting uh, paper by... Uh, Jody Bottom, the former editor of First Things, um, <laughs> it's kind of a a political autobiography in miniature, but he makes an interesting point about American culture, um, which he says has two uh, kind of two sources, um, one of which is is uh, Christianity, and the other is um, the Enlightenment. And he um, says that the two sources have been kind of degraded in modern liberal culture. And what's left over is from Christianity, you have the principle of, of niceness in our culture. And from the Enlightenment, you have the principle of, of coolness. And you have kind of these two imperatives in our culture to be cool and to be nice. Um, and they're not entirely uh, reconcilable. But on that account, I mean, what, what Gabriel is talking about seems to be their liberalism as kind of a, an imitation of Christianity with niceness or what Rob, and there I think you can bring back Rob's uh, principle of anti-cruelty, um, niceness as being sort of the substitute for charity. Right. And I, I think you also see it. I mean, if my view is right, you, you see why niceness becomes so prevalent today because historically what it was is saying, look, you know, we're bracketing these questions because we can't agree on them. And ultimately, that leads to relativism. Or maybe sometimes relativism leads people to say, let's bracket the questions in public and not waste our time fighting over them. Yeah, I, don't, I, wanna, I mean, we should wrap up soon, but I just want to push back a little bit against um, your conjoining of Marxism and liberalism. I mean, I, th I think that it's partly true that Gabriel is right. There is a, a kind of coincidence of ends there. That is, you have um, in Marx, you don't have, I mean, because you have uh, the removal of the supernatural end um, and you don't even have a, a teleological understanding of, of human nature in an Aristotelian sense, you do have kind of this empty notion of, of freedom in Marx. Um, which goes, I mean, you, that you can see that even in his theory of value, that the the idea of use value in Marx is, I think, um, ultimately unsatisfactory because it's not, he doesn't specify what use value is useful for. That is, you don't have a strong account of the good life for which these um, things are for. You have just kind of this 
uh, empty notion of utility that is similar to um, the liberal notion of utility. Uh, um, John Hughes has has really good work on this, but nevertheless, um, as Alan was saying before, liberalism always presents itself as a nice version of modernity, and Marxism will you know abandon this the the principle of being nice and the principle of avoiding cruelty for the sake of um, a collective end that is in the future. So you have this. Um, a much greater tolerance for uh, even if even if liberals will you know end up killing a lot of people in the name of liberalism, there's less um, they're less frank about it. The Marxists will openly admit, yeah, we can kill millions of people now because it's for the um, it's for the sake of you know the future classless society. Whereas liberals, though they will kill lots of people, they're not going to admit that that's what they're doing. Right. Uh, great leap forward makes it all worthwhile, I suppose. So let's wrap up on that point. I thought this was a really interesting discussion, and uh, maybe we agreed a bit too much. <laughs> maybe we should have, <laughs> should have been more disagreeable to, to create fireworks. But I, I really enjoyed this discussion. Alan, thank you so much. And uh, anyone who made it to the end, if you do write to us, we will almost certainly respond. Editors at thejosias.com. Thanks so much, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Alan, and thank you, Joel. It's really good fun.